Changshu means often ripe or, more prettily, evergrow. The name refers to the region's good soil and food output, but could just as easily refer to its economic boom in recent decades. It's a small city in the Yangtze River Delta, with a mere 1.5 million people. Small as a relative term though, Changshu has twice the number of residents as Seattle. Still, in the eyes of those big Chinese cities like Shanghai or Guangzhou, Changshu is simply countryside. For anyone who hasn't heard the previous episode and is wondering why I'm talking about a place called Changshu, well this is the Chinese town I went to in 2014 to teach English. I went to work and live in an international school, and that's kind of what this podcast is about. As in nearby Suzhou, which has jurisdiction over Changshu, it's a canal city. A canal borders one side of the school grounds, besides which local fishermen sit idly. Occasionally, one of them might casually throw in a volley of poison to make his job easier. The roads nearby are numerous, a US-style grid of perfectly straight roads split into blocks, leading nowhere. They were invariably devoid of cars, an emptiness matched by the plots of land in between, some of which had crops half-heartedly growing in them. Other plots were proud guardians of forgotten piles of red bricks. The school was really the only thing here. Beyond it, the road simply ground to a halt, as if the cement mixer had given up and everyone had gone home. A few hundred metres down the road there's a university, a small jungle of high-rise apartment blocks, and some hotels, banks and offices. Other new buildings were nearing completion, still with their bamboo exoskeletons. Posters pinned to lampposts predicted bustling canal-side commerce to look forward to. Changshu's centre houses the ancient city, enclosed by a canal and overshadowed by Yushan, the little mountain 300 metres tall. Outwards from here, Changshu has sprawled and looks to continue doing so for a good while yet. The old town is notable for its alleys, filled with rickshaws and tottering old women carrying ladders and bamboo and shallow baskets of green beans. Beyond that are wide roads flanked by bonus roads either side for two- and three-wheeled transportation. As no one uses helmets and no one checks their blind spots, these extra roads are a blessing for the less well-armoured commuter. A half-built double-decker ring road circulates all this, and outside that, empty new districts which provide jobs for builders will sit stagnant until someone makes enough cash to move in. And that's where the school is. Evergrow wouldn't be an inappropriate name for the whole of China. Economic growth has been notoriously high, embarrassingly high when seen from our humbled shores. And the growth is tangible, marked in the weathered faces of the farmers, the new cars on the new roads, and the ghost cities. Ghost cities are one of the West's go-to gotchas regarding Chinese economic development. It's a fabulous tale of central planning gone awry, something to allow us to reassert our faith in the market. Or is it? A few months after moving to China, I went to Suzhou's Bookworm Festival, where Wade Shepard, author of Ghost Cities of China, told us that, far from these empty shell homes being an example of failed housing planning, they simply function as investments, like storage facilities containing abstract capital, easier to be sold off and demolished than fitted out and rented out. American ghost cities, by contrast, are the result of capital flight, places taken over by humans, exploited and finally deserted. In China, the government offers incentives to turn the ghost city into a live city, 
and it often works. But failing that, the capitalist will just sit on it. Shin, from the International Department Office, expressed the common wisdom. They prefer to demolish them than let poor people live there, she said. No one will ever live there. Whether this will all come tumbling down is still an open question. Recently, a real estate company called Evergrande has been buckling under the weight of its own investments and debts, and the edifice of a continually expanding housing market appears to be on shaky ground. The risk that Evergrande's collapse could provoke wider instability in the industry and in the Chinese and global economies has drawn comparisons with the Lehman Brothers collapse, the first big casualty in 2007 crash. The CCP's commitment to its socialist credentials is on the cards. Will they bail out the reckless capitalists who created this problem like the Americans did? Or find another way? Still, near the school, in this ghost district, the lack of bustle meant peace, and the lack of cars was surely good for the lungs. Despite this welcome, environmentally friendly twist, I developed a bloody nose for four of the seven days of the autumnal week. I also had a bad throat, exacerbated no doubt by yelling at kids, which brings me back to the school. That afternoon we had a meeting, management and foreign teachers. There was a chance to have a formal welcome and meet the people who were to inevitably become my friends. In a presidential room with a long, shiny wooden table, the teachers were seated. We numbered seven. There were four Chinese staff smiling at us from across the table, one of whom, a woman named Jane, said that one more American teacher, Penny, was not present on this occasion. No reason was given. It turned out that Jane was the vice principal, one of a number of vice principals I later learned. Besides her sat a small, bespectacled gent named Abe, and the school's arch-principal, the Big Cheese, a middle-aged man who didn't have an English name. Next to him was Shin, the woman who picked me up from the airport. Speaking through Shin's translation, the principal offered a heartfelt welcome and spoke of the great heights to which this school will soon ascend, especially now superb teachers like us were here to help. I looked around. Us? The principal said his goodbyes and was soon gone rarely to be seen again except for special get-togethers where he would be liberally drinking baijiu, white Chinese wine. The rest of us began introducing the bare minimum of ourselves. First went the teachers who already worked here. From the USA was Shirley, a middle-aged fizzy-haired woman with kind eyes. She'd been here a number of years, working nearby in Suzhou. Eddie, a shadowy figure who hadn't quite shared his teenage heavy metal fandom, spoke longer than the others in his resigned southern drawl. He had worked at this school for three years, almost since it started, and he made a qualified agreement with the now absent principal that there were opportunities for great things at the cradle of elites. The tone of his voice, however, supplanted great things for much-needed improvements. Phil was a large man with sympathetic eyes from Quebec. He'd been here a year. He said no more, and I hardly heard from him for the rest of the semester. Three of the new teachers were also from the USA. Kelly was mid-twenties, large, blonde, with glasses and a greening tattoo of a dinosaur on her forearm. She had a Chinese husband from Hunan, who went by the name of Ralph. Mark, a middle-aged man, was eminently relaxed, it seemed. He elongated certain syllables and filled his sentences with vacant phrases which just trailed off after a while. Last but certainly not least was Don, Arizona man. 
I'd actually met Don already. The previous night I had returned home from my little jaunt with Lee to the local grub source and tried to fix up the internet. Predictably enough, it wouldn't work. High on jet lag, I had the unlikely inclination to knock on neighbours' doors. I shared my fifth floor with no less than five other doors, each of which, I assumed, led to another flat. The first four sets of knocks led nowhere, but the fifth led to the man. He invited me in and introduced his daughter, Louisa, and wife, Yong, from Korea. They were living in Arizona and had pretty much moved their entire life here, into this apartment in the school. Don himself was a bulky guy, evidently proud of his muscles, but hobbling around somewhat on account of dropping a piano on his foot. Aside from being impressed by his muscles, the man's new colleagues and students alike were fascinated by his wandering eye, which he put down to a grenade blowing up beside him once. Used to be in the military, he told me, in education. Did a lot of secretive, top-secret training, he said. Military, neuro-linguistic programming, black ops. Arizona man was uh, keen to impart all aspects of his current and former life, and I had to seize on a lull in his biographical yarn to ask him if their internet works. He confirmed it was so, so I asked him if he could be so kind as to tell me where I'm going wrong. In my bare apartment, we men set to work. Arizona man muttered something about the cable, the hole in the side of the laptop, and the connector bit in the wall. His technical vocabulary had a certain limit, I discovered, and he didn't do anything that I hadn't already done. The extent of our efforts amounted to putting in the Ethernet cable and standing back. Then, as we stroked beards, peering down at the computer, the internet connected. Why it connected for him, and not for me, I'll never know. But therein lay his magic. The meeting went on, with the atmosphere growing a little tense. The Chinese staff were fairly inexperienced, and the new teachers were on average quite old. Older than I'd expected, truth be told. With the management almost encircled, it seemed that the newcomers had the upper hand, like bears surrounding a child covered in peanut butter. Whether Chinese staff had been careful with their words, like politicians, these foreign teachers were abrupt, interruptive, jokey, sarcastic, not unpleasant, but nonchalant in contrast to the Chinese staff's almost Japanese politeness. The politeness was soon broken. To my alarm, Jane, the vice principal, told us that we would be expected to design a curriculum using the American textbooks that they bought in. She informed us of this duty as if it were a great honour. To my surprise, I found myself piping up, asking something like, didn't you say in the interview that you had a full curriculum? They don't, said Eddie. He went on to explain at length why it's unfair to the new teachers to apply this sort of pressure. Eddie's intervention, his frank tone, had burst the bubble. The protestations began to flow. Some were displeased with the isolation of the school, which I personally didn't mind. Others with the work hours, now said to be different from those that were promised. Indeed, according to my interview notes, and I checked them, classes were to be in the morning. Three afternoons was one of the clinches for me, drawing me away from other, more well-paid jobs. Here, though, it seemed that anything before 3pm was morning, and now with this curriculum business, people were getting suspicious and feeling a little tricked. But the lethal blow was dealt by Kelly. In Kelly's class was a girl from America, Arizona man's child Louisa, whom I had met the night before. 
Her Chinese skills were significantly worse than that of the Chinese kids, which is hardly surprising, being an American kid after all. Kelly described how the Chinese teacher didn't appreciate this, and treated young Louisa punitively for not doing well in Chinese class. The Chinese staff nodded in understanding, but before they could speak, Mark jumped in, saying about how, I also have a daughter here. Is this how you're treating the American children? Jane tried to reduce the sudden tension in the room, explaining that foreigners in China should try to understand that they are not at home anymore, and there are some differences about how school works. At this, Eddie let out an oh-she-didn't-just-say-that groan. Mark's hand slammed down on the table. Anger was afoot. At high volume, he castigated the school and its pawns of tyranny, and with that he left the room. Silence crept in, until Eddie and Arizona man Don chose to explain, in tones that were at once conciliatory and condescending, that this cultural difference line gets a little old. And besides... This is supposed to be an international school, right? I found myself thinking that a young girl becoming tearful during her first week in a new school is not particularly extraordinary, and that Mark's outburst was one hell of an overreaction. I stayed quiet. The residual awkwardness remained for the duration of the semester. Every time a foreign teacher and a Chinese member of the faculty shared space or locked eyes, it wasn't the last bust-up that we were to have. In fact, it rather set a precedent. A certain paranoia crept into the proceedings, making every gesture suspicious. I won't deny that I too was afflicted by this paranoia. If you'd been there, locked behind those gates with the guards, like a distant cousin growing slowly claustrophobic in this massive family, you would have too. Even though some of it had been unreasonable, inflated or rude, I left the meeting feeling pretty satisfied. The teachers weren't going to get pushed around, and that's fine by me. After my previous teaching job and the stories that make the rounds on internet message boards, being stitched up was not on my agenda. I'd met the teachers, all except the mysterious Penny, and got a sense of the interdepartmental dynamics. It seemed that there could be some speed bumps on the journey ahead. Next time on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you, I take the e-bike and venture out into the city to see what speed bumps lie there. I discover Changshu's special relationship with nuclear warfare and find out why, in the 1950s, Chinese villagers went on a crusade against sparrows. <laughs>